This episode is brought to you by DailyDrip.com. Daily Drip makes keeping up to date on programming skills easier. You already know how much time it takes to find good resources and learn new languages. What if the hard part of that was already done for you? Sign up for Daily Drip and pick a topic that you want to learn about. Want to learn Elm? How about Elixir? Maybe you want to brush up on your CSS and HTML. Every weekday you'll get a short video or reading delivered to you via email. The best part is it only takes 5 minutes a day. Daily Drip has a special coupon code just for Functional Geekery listeners. If you sign up using the code KEEGREE, you'll save $9 on your first month, which means you can try out the Elm topic for free. Make learning a part of your daily routine with DailyDrip.com. Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Lambda Days will be taking place again on the 9th and 10th of February of 2017. Lambda Days is a one-of-a-kind experience in the functional world. The never-failing explosion of enthusiasm and talent is what gets them motivated to explore the amazing community and all of its potential. To Lambda Days, Scala, Erlang, Haskell, Elixir, F-Sharp, Lisp, Clojure, and many other emerging technologies are more than just languages. They are new perspectives on how to understand and tackle challenges of everyday work. The call for talks is open until January 1st, 2017, and make sure to keep an eye out on their site for when registration opens. Visit www.lambdadays.org to submit your talk and to keep updated as information comes available. And if you would like a discount code, email contact at functionalgeekery.com or DM at FNGeekery on Twitter for a code to get 15% off ticket price. CatsConf 2 will be taking place in Dublin, Ireland on the 18th of February. CatsConf is a single-track, not-for-profit conference with hands-on workshops. With an amazing lineup already announced and the rest of the lineup to be announced soon, it looks to be an exciting conference. Visit catsconf.com, that's K-A-T-S-C-O-N-F dot com, for more information and to register. Closure D has been announced will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on February 25th of 2017. Early bird tickets are currently available. For more information and to register, visit www.closured.de. The day before Closure D on February 24th in Berlin, BobConf will be taking place. Bob has a strong focus on functional programming, and Bob is the forum for developers, architects, and builders to explore technologies beyond the mainstream and to discover the best tools available today for building software. With a keynote by John Hughes, their goal is for all participants to leave the conference with new ideas to improve development back at the ranch. For more information about the conference, visit bobconf.de, that's B-O-B-K-O-N-N-F dot D-E. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event March 27th through the 30th of 2017. The unconf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. Erlang and Elixir Factory 2017 is on the 23rd and 24th of March. The call for talks is now open and closes on January 8th at 11.59pm Pacific Standard Time. This factory includes Tutorials Day on March 25th and training on the 20th through the 22nd and the 27th through the 30th of March. To submit your talk and keep updated with information, visit www.erling-factory.com slash sfbay2017. The Flatmap Oslo conference presentations is now open. Flatmap Oslo is an FP conference with a focus on Scala and the JVM, taking place on May 2nd and 3rd in Oslo, Norway. Please go to 2017.flatmap.no slash cfp to learn more. Announcements of the speakers are being done on Twitter at at Flatmap Oslo. Elm Europe will be taking place on June 8th and 9th in Paris, France. Evan Zabuki and Richard Feldman will be speaking. The CFP is open until the 15th of January 
and they already have 32 awesome proposals submitted, so make sure to get yours in. Early bird tickets are currently available, but there's no telling how long they will last. For more information, to register, and to submit your talk, visit elmuro.org. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guest at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Lee Misalides. Lee, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, uh, I'm Lee. I'm a developer at I want my name, a domain registrar right now. My primary stacks at the moment are Elixir, Elm, JavaScript, etc. How I came into the business is actually, I came in from the front end with HTML and CSS when you were able to just know those two. And as I progressed through, I somehow ended up in Erlang land. And then as soon as I learned about Elixir, which is a silly story, I immediately converted into the Elixir space and last year at ElixirConf US 2015 in Austin, Alan Gardner showed me Elm in his talk and I pestered him quite a bit at the conference and I was sold on that as well. So this is how I came into functional programming through the Erlang space and Fred Hubert's book, Learn You Some Erlang. And this is where I've landed today with Elm and Elixir, et cetera. So you started with the HTML and JavaScript side and then got exposed to Erlang. What was that timeline like? Because if you were HTML and JavaScript and that was all you needed to know to do front-end stuff, was that back in 96, 98 when it was first coming around? Or was that mid-2000s and then you got exposed to Erlang at some point later? We're talking mid-2000s, like 2008, I would say I did some professional stuff as HTML and CSS because my educational background is actually political science and classics. Uh, so I tend to, I have a wide breadth of my knowledge. I got exposed to Erlang because, well, two different ways. One of which is I met the folks at I Want My Name in 2012. And they were working on Erlang and CouchDB and Rabbit. And then literally the job I got about a week after meeting them, had RabbitMQ in the stack, and I immediately started learning that side of it. I also had known some Ruby in some of that period, but I was really a front-end developer that kind of knew how to attach things to Ruby controllers and views and didn't really understand what was going on in a database and that sort of stuff. So at that juncture, I was using a web framework called Chicago Boss and attaching it to RabbitMQ for a visualization tool for this company I was doing contract work for. And this is the funny story. So somewhere in the documentation for Chicago Boss, and this is 2012, there was a offhanded note mentioning that Elixir existed, and it seems interesting, and it may work. And that's where I found Elixir. So I think that was like at point four or point three or something like that, somewhere very early in the Elixir development. 
And then if you were doing front end and then you made the transition to Erlang at that point, because you're digging into some of this RabbitMQ internals and integration stuff and having to build these dashboards, what was the transition like coming from the JavaScript world and making it into Erlang? Because JavaScript has many flavors and what kind of flavors of JavaScript were you writing and how did that affect your learning Erlang? They were actually sectioned off from each other in a way. So at the time, because I was kind of working before that, I was working at a media agency that dealt with Rails. We used both just vanilla JavaScript of the era with jQuery, and then we converted to CoffeeScript. And I will freely admit, I was not the best JavaScript developer. Uh, so... A lot of my uh, functions weren't necessarily that clean. And when I came to Erlang, the syntax was very different from what I was used to. But with a like, language-based background, the commas make a certain amount of sense. And the periods make a full sense. This is the full stop of this function. And the only thing that it took me to wrap my head around was I lost global state. But I was never entirely comfortable with global state anyway, so it was kind of like, meh, <laughs> lost the thing, learn about accumulators, move on with life. And at the time, Fred's book had been fully developed at this point, or as I think Fred has described it, his very long blog post. So Learn You Some Erlang was like my desk reference, where I could just sit there, skim through it for the problem I was trying to solve, read at a very high level what the problem was, see a syntax example, and... I was free to go. I could do whatever I wanted, really, in the ecosystem of doing a Chicago boss. So Chicago boss already exists. I didn't, wasn't making my own NBC at the time. But it was actually very graceful for me to go into Erlang at that point, largely because the tooling was there for me to learn. So it wasn't necessarily a huge jump in the mindset other than the global variables, because depending on when you came in and which, I guess, which JavaScript frameworks or libraries you were using, you would either you deal with just functions being pure or not, or as opposed to having some of the object-oriented attempts at creating modules as classes and the like then. Yeah, so when we were using jQuery-like JavaScript, really, as you say, they were pure-ish functions with a little tiny bit of global state, which was more or less the DOM. And then when CoffeeScript came in, I kind of basically just wrote that with a cleaner syntax. Technically, there were classes and inheritance, and I was trying to learn Backbone at the time, but I never really had a use for Backbone at the time. Like It was more important for me to learn things like D3.js when I was doing data visualization tools than dealing with Backbones like front-end routers and stuff like that. So, yeah, the only thing I lost, as I said, was the global state thing where I could just... Or as I worded it at the time, my bookshelf, where I used to just put things and then get them out again. But that is not a huge leap. It's just, oh, I lost this one thing, but I get this other huge advantage. So, And you start playing with this. You see Chicago Boss has something in the documentation at that point that says, there's this new thing called Elixir. It may or may not be something. It's still in progress. It's a 0.3, release. How soon did you jump into understanding and taking a look at Elixir? Or was that just, you knew it was out there and it still took a while before you actually wanted to dive in? And So at that point, I couldn't move off into an experimental zone with Elixir 
for work. I was working with large enterprising tech companies. It was hard enough to sell to get them to use Erlang. But as soon as I saw Elixir, I literally saw the future with quotes around that because I started up an Elixir project. Mix already existed and that was really slick and it was built into the language. The documentation, even though Erlang does have a fairly good documentation source, was better and more integrated to the code base, which as a person that used to have to jump in to code bases now and again, was a godsend. You just go to the top of your module and bang, there's all your documentation if you're doing it right. And at the time, because most of the Elixir code was really the actual Elixir language, it was pretty easy with the Erlang knowledge and the fact that Jose was working very hard to make sure that Elixir is a well-documented language and all that. It was very easy for me to learn good syntax in Elixir because you just read the Elixir code base. So I was doing it on private projects. And then within a year, I was starting to make plugins for Erlang tools in Elixir, which did bite me because that was before the records map switch. And I still remember about a month before that I had sold, oh, we should go with Elixir because it's way easier for to teach new developers because it has a more modern syntax, more what they're familiar with. And I think a week later, Jose ripped out records in favor of maps, which, yes, that was good, but it was really hard for me to go back with my tail between my legs. Yeah, so it's a young language and it's slightly uns- and we're changing it. So I, I spent a week ripping out all the records, <laughs> putting them in the maps. <laughs> but uh, it was fine in the end. It was just when you get enthusiastic early on, sometimes you get bitten a little bit. So it sounds like you're one of the lucky ones who was able to get Elixir in and start playing with it at work. And even today, it sounds like in 2016, it's gaining traction, it's gaining steam, but it is still very niche, the fact of actually pulling it in and using it for actual production tooling versus just some tooling on the side that you may be playing with. Yeah, I, I got very lucky where I was working internal projects for larger companies. So I had a little bit of leeway with my stack, whereas they wouldn't necessarily want to ship something major to their customers with something more experimental. But on the other hand, the strategy there was always add small functionality in Elixir. So Elixir was always part of my toolkit because by that point I was more doing um, more DevOps like things and writing plugins for larger frameworks or stuff like that in Elixir was much easier and much easier to teach. This was a major feature that uh, was easy for me to tell people. It's like, look, I can just show your developers how to do Elixir in a day or two with the documentation I provided. And they are functional to start taking over parts of this project. And that was a really good sell for me. And I'm not sure if it's the bubble that I live in, but I know quite a few companies that are like Elixir in production right now. But I think that might be because I have been floating around the Elixir community so long, like I talk to people that's like, oh, yeah, no, we have that going. So like, um, like I want my name has Elixir in production right now. And Packlane is another company that I know that is doubling down on Elixir. And oddly, both of them are no SQL stores. But yeah, I don't know. It's definitely gaining steam because I see more and more things appear on Stack Overflow where Jose and Chris aren't the only people um, answering questions and stuff like that. So it's really exciting to watch that space. And if you're writing plugins, at what point did you make the transition to 
building services and the like and picking up Phoenix to be able to build on top of some of these stuff versus just plugging into Chicago Boss or some of these other toolings that are out there. So that's a bit of an interesting story there. So I went to an Erlang factory, and this was a period in Elixir land where there, I think, were three web engines. One was called Weber. There was Dynamo. And then at an Erlang factory, Chris gave a talk about macros, and he announced this Phoenix framework. And then one of my friends explained this channels aspect at ElixirConf1 in Austin again. And then I was sold on Phoenix because Channels was a great abstraction, very similar to uh, Rabbit, to deal with delivering data to clients in a quick and intuitive way. So I started pitching Phoenix at that point. And I think I had something as an internal tool production tool by October of that year. So right after ElixirConf1. I don't remember the exact date, but I remember getting that out there. And that was really nice because I was pairing it with D3 at the time. And it was allowing for pretty real-time stats, which was part of the project. But so, yeah, that was when that decision happened. So you picked Phoenix up, not necessarily for the MVC web framework, but for the channels and WebSocket functionality that you were wanting to be able to pick up and take advantage of then? A little bit. I actually have a particular dislike for MVC, to be honest. Uh, so uh, I use it. I I did like that Phoenix just had that kind of analogy there. And increasingly, it's moving away from that, which makes me happy, which is why I originally liked Dynamo better, because Dynamo was kind of this like classic-like framework where you can just mix and match. But there is real advantages to having the batteries in method where you can get someone going. And as I went into community outreach to a certain degree, the batteries in approach is really nice. It's just, for me, yes, definitely channels was a deep selling point. But there are so many extra advantages with the MVC analogy that your developers probably know from a variety of frameworks and all of that. It's useful for getting in and getting features done and then being able to refactor them later into something more manageable. And Dynamo, if I recall history from what I've heard correctly, was essentially Jose's web framework that he was using as a spike to prove out some of the concepts of the language to make sure he could build something with it as he's building Elixir. Was that Dynamo or was Dynamo a different one? No, that was that Dynamo. It's also Dynamo, or at least the Dynamo group, I'm pretty sure is where Ecto came from as well. Because I think Ecto and Dynamo were paired in the beginning. And then when Phoenix came in, Ecto kind of went into Phoenix to get the Postgres at the time. And then it was MS SQL, which was weird because that came before MySQL. But yeah, that, I think that, that, that you're right about the timeline there. And so how long between that and I guess it was about a year between the time you first got Phoenix into production, started using it, and you came across... Alan at ElixirConf2 giving his presentation about Phoenix and Elm together making a nice little package for web apps. What was going on in that meantime? Were you noticing a lot of steam being picked up in the company and the selling point of Elixir? Or were you just chugging along, taking advantage of it, being stable, 
And then all of a sudden you just got hit with this new idea of like, wait, those seem really good together. There's a bit of both. So in the case of chugging along, absolutely, that's what I was doing. And I kind of lived in a kind of bubble where I was just churning features out. But I was constantly coming up to this problem where I was in the Elixir developer spending a lot of time data crunching in JavaScript because I was getting this nice stuff out of channels. And then I would have to write a bunch of JavaScript to make it work properly. And that was kind of an annoyance. And because of that, I started shopping around for JavaScript frameworks that might make this easier. React.js showed up, of course, and Elm showed up. And in my side conversations with friends, it's like, perhaps I should try a new front-end framework. And then they were like, well, yeah, but that's like the thing you say every week. I'm like, yeah. So I did see Elm a little bit before, but I didn't have a lot of time to research it. And to me, it looked like at the time, and this is a woeful description of it, was, oh, it has some templating and it has pipes. Yay. And I was interested from that point, but I didn't look deeper into its architecture because, you know, you have to get on with life. And then Alan Gardner actually made the cell where I'm sitting there and I was vaguely aware of Elm, hence why I was at the talk. And then he showed me in that talk exactly what Elm is good at and why it pairs so well with channels. And then I was sold at that point and constantly trying to push Elm onto everyone and their dog. So it sounds like the Phoenix side was the part that was chugging along nicely. Yeah. And then it's the JavaScript and interacting and getting data and doing that. That was the part where you would occasionally bang your head against the desk saying, there's got to be a better way. The back end part is now so smooth and I've got that problem. How can I do the same to my front end? Yeah, that was exactly where I was sitting, where like what will help me get this process of front end and back end working in concert well. And this was one of the things that came up in Alan Gardner's talks, which is what he did there was essentially make it had to do with how he structured his app. But instead of having this front end and back end division, he intellectually, even though there is some front end and back end division, made it like Elm was its own module inside Elixir, which was, to be honest, more haskily and statically typed. But with the way he was architecting his apps now, he had an embedded div, which behaved like it was its own Elixir module with, as I said, different syntax, but now completely on the front end. And then all of a sudden, all this churning I used to do with getting data in and manipulating went away. And that was the big sell to me, at least. It was really neat. And then, well, the rest is history at that point. Because then there was the Evan and Chris talk about Elm and Phoenix. And then Evan made some changes to Elm to make it actually even more friendly to a pub sub analogy with channels and that WebSocket layer inside Elm now. And yeah, I've been actually rewarded because it's much easier to deal with the front end nowadays, at least for templating and number crunching. And you see Elm as part of this module that Alan used in his presentation at ElixirConf. And you said the architecture was nice. As you started saying, okay, there's something here. How can I take advantage of it? When you actually looked at Elm, what was it that you started thinking about Elm as you started looking at it in more depth and knowing that I can see this is feasible. What were those things as you started picking up Elm that really started to challenge the way you were thinking about this or reinforce your 
way of thinking about this. So the first thing I liked about Elm is you have this port system, which is very similar-ish to the idea of Erlang ports. You're talking to the outside world of JavaScript in at least an Elm web framework. And what I could do is I could pin the responsibility of connecting to channels, which in Socket.js has a WebSocket a section of it, which is really nice. But if you don't have WebSockets available for some reason, there's a fallback for Ajax, mild amount of configuration on the Phoenix side. And then all of that division of responsibility of handling how data is transported is kind of offloaded to Socket.js inside Phoenix. And then when I was inside Elm, it allowed me to focus on, okay, data is arriving. It's updating the model in a way. So data arrives, and then I through the update function, update the model, and I have a view. And this is very MVC. It's just not Rails-flavored MVC, where we are updating the model and then reacting to that, as opposed to the Rails version where we're always updating via the controller or update in Phoenix in Elm language. And this is very nice because it allows me to focus on the problem. And the problem that I was always encountering is I have data coming in and I need to show people what this data is. And I don't want to fuss with WebSockets or this peculiarity about the DOM or a variety of other things. I have nice, clean HTML templating, and it comes in really fast. And it allows me to focus on that one thing, which is also what attracts me to Erlang and Elixir and most functional languages. Our, the module-type system in the pure functional way allows you to focus on the one thing you're working on. And for all engineers, that's catnip. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, I can focus on what I'm doing without having to deal with a thousand and one edge cases. And that's really where I found the pairing between Elm and Phoenix work really well. Because if I'm working on a particular form of business logic inside Phoenix, I'm inside one module, I might have a protocol implemented or something else in that one part of the module, but I can focus on the problem at hand. And Elm gives me that as well, where uh, many of the other JavaScript frameworks don't. And Elm isn't truly a JavaScript framework. It's a bit disparaging to call it that. It's like it's a Haskell-like language that has a JavaScript compile target. But still, uh, this is what Elm bought me, which was a big one. And you say you like this. Was this intuitive to you? Because of the fact that you've got this data coming in from your WebSockets and setting that up and having the model just be updated and the view automatically updated, was that something you got right away when you started digging in? Or was that something that took you a little bit to understand and play with and re-architect until you're like, okay, now I get how this works. And now this is really elegant and I really like this, but I didn't get it quite at first. So I didn't get it right at first, as all things, because I'm banging rocks together here. But I think the biggest impediment for me learning Elm, because I don't come from the Haskell ecosystem, was its version of static typing. I seem to remember at some point I was getting a compiler, not a compiler, well, a compiler error of I needed to give this function a particular type, which was an HTML attribute. And that was maddening because that wasn't the standard type I was used to from like my world in dealing with SQL or uh, something else. And as soon as I kind of understood how Elm and that flavor of programming deals with typing, then it kind of fell into place. 
the updating the model thing that came very naturally to me. Now I did sit in Alan Garner's talk and he did give me the very nice uh, Jessica Kerr diagram of how that works. So maybe it's just because I saw that and that I immediately understood what I was doing. And I was also helped a lot by the fact that Alan Garner was giving a very verbose blog in the background of how you code this step by step. So that was also part of the tooling that I guess helped me, but I never felt not at home at Elm. Like Elm felt very good for the other reason was, I remember this particularly, I was rolling something very, a trivial thing in Elm, but it was kind of my first thing that would go into uh, like an internal tool type thing. And I didn't have internet access at the time because um, I was at a cafe and the Wi-Fi had completely collapsed. But I managed to code the entire thing with the internal help and error messages without looking online. And this is the same workflow I have in Elixir because of all the very good documentation and the ability to call up help. Like the Elm thing where you call a zero arity function and then immediately you kind of get the help for that and what args it takes. This is really, really useful. And I, yeah, as I said, I've like four hours and kind of my first real L map that isn't, you know, a coding kata. I did it offline. So I don't know if that's a sell for anyone else, but that was amazing to me because I, you know, I have Stack Overflow open at all times or some sort of documentation that's online only. And you mentioned some of the type stuff and thinking about the types. Was that understanding the types in general or was that just? understanding why that particular type was needed and trying to put what this HTML attribute type is versus thinking in types. Thinking in types was never that big a problem for me because even though I didn't have to do it before with Elixir being kind of a weekly typed system with Erlang and SQL has typing in it. and When you're doing data visualization, you're always thinking about types of data. But I was very used to the idea that types came in like a few like C variant varieties, like there's int and there's long int and you pick this type for this reason. The flexibility of the types inside Elm, where you can kind of have custom types-ish, that's what took me a while to learn. That like, oh, you make an HTML attribute type or H, in this case, an HTML attribute type is made and you call that. And that's what took me a little time where these weren't as uh, rock solid in the headspace as they would be in like C. After that point, yeah, that's really the only impediment. But the types help you so much because, as I said, the ability to code completely offline comes from that, where you run a compile. And as uh, another friend of mine, Martin Gosby, said, all Elm's compiler does is tells you whether or not your application is, in fact, a program. And you'd be amazed at how many JavaScript applications aren't that. And again, that's what took me the time to understand. But if you come from the Haskell ecosystem, it should be incredibly intuitive or even C. In my case, I had not come from that space. And then the other thing with the type system, having looked just a little bit at Elm, one of those kind of code kata kind of things I did was getting into thinking about the architecture and splitting it out with the fact that I believe at that point your view essentially returned the action. So you take an action in and you have your update function. It's like, here's some action. We pattern match or do whatever we do against it. And then we return some other new state, which is a representation. And the fact that 
you've got that purity of that action you're acting against in that architecture. Was that something that was still natural to you or just came obvious from Alan and Jessica kind of explaining it? Well, because I didn't go deep into Elm without the very, very good Jessica Kerr uh, keynote at ElixirConf US 2, I guess let's call it, and Alan Gardner's explanation for a more practical Inside Phoenix, I can't really say that was very clear to me throughout. And I kind of viewed it like how video games work, or better yet, how movies work, where you're essentially just drawing a frame. Like, I have this, I'm drawing the next frame. I have this, I'm drawing the next frame. And that's kind of just how I visualize it in my head. Like, it's a weird movie projector. Game engines actually work the same, even though they're very OO on the insides. They just find it more efficient to just completely redraw the frame rather than mutating the state of the view. Which is why ReactJS and Elmer like so freaking fast, because that strategy works. And then with that architecture comes down to the split of the WebSockets and knowing how you're interacting with signals or ports or whatever it was called at the... I can't remember what it was called at the time and what it's called now. It was signals at the time. It's now much more elegant than 17, where you kind of just have a subscription and you don't have to do all the wiring anymore. You just subscribe or you send commands, I think is the language they use, which is literal pops up. You either publish or you subscribe. So that's much easier nowadays. And then how did that interaction picking up work? Because this gets back into the integration of the Phoenix side and the Phoenix web channels to how you're dealing with the event loop. So you've got this event loop that gets triggered somehow, which winds up being these messages through the WebSockets from Phoenix. Did you find, what was that like when you were making that connection? And where I want to go with this is what it was like then getting these two integrated and where that's starting to look like now and how that's evolved. So let's start with what was that setup and that connection like at the point when you were first going through this route of getting it set up? Well, I cheated. So Alan Gardner basically had the JavaScript blob to subscribe to a channel. So I had that attach it to this particular LMAP and I was done. Uh, So that was super easy. And I'm still using that strategy where Phoenix already has this idea of PubSub in that Socket.js thing. So you just make a one-to-one mapping to Elm. And now that there's a subscription and a command interface, that is even simpler. So you almost have to do no wiring. And to be honest, you don't entirely need to understand what's happening on the back end. Like, it's good to know. But to get work done, you don't need to. So to jump to today, Frank Bonetti, which we'll link in the show notes, has written a very nice version of the Socket.js that's included inside Phoenix for Elm using the uh, 17.1, I want to say, WebSocket extraction that Evan wrote. Now, I'm not using that currently for a couple of reasons. It's very nice, and I've tried it out, and it's evolving very fast. So everyone, if you want to see what Elm Socket.js would look like, uh, go look at that. But it does lose one thing, which is it doesn't have the Ajax abstraction in it. And in the fullness of time, I'm sure if it's not already done by the time I get to it, I'll probably want to um, update that for that. And the only reason I bring that up is because the thing I very much liked about channels, even in the early days, is that it was protocol agnostic. So I've been around the block enough times to know that WebSockets today are super cool. But there are times when I might need something like 
as an example, UDP. I might need a UDP abstraction layer. It would be nice because from the Elm side of things, if I just happen for TCIP reasons need UDP rather than a WebSocket or HTTP request, I would just like to be able to not touch my Elm code. So we just appreciate like Frank Bonetti's library so that it can now start communicating over UDP. And then all of a sudden these messages are still coming into my Elm programs cleanly as like Elm records that can still react the same way, even though for some technical decision somewhere else, I needed to make a different call. So for me, like channels are always going to be protocol agnostic. Now, the thing is, it's kind of a two-edged sword. Like Phoenix channels made WebSockets super easy. So everyone talks about WebSockets. But the whole point of is, at least in my view, is that it abstracts that away from you because you don't really have to think about WebSockets with Phoenix. You just have to think about what is my data. So with the Socket.js and Frank Bonetti's library, if we keep appreciating this so that we have options which can be configured when we want to focus on how does this actually connect to the server problem, we will have increasingly better programs where we don't have to refactor every time we change a protocol or something like that. Like HTTPS 2 is increasingly becoming a viable option. We might want to do that for long-lived connections or anything like that. So, I mean, like, as I said earlier, modules are great in functional languages because it allows you to focus on a particular problem. And I can kind of consider Socket.js to be its own little module that deals with connecting to the server, I guess. And you were talking about the channels and the generic abstraction there and not being WebSockets. And then you also brought up HTTP2, which is what was going in my head with some of these server sent events as well, where the server may send down some other stuff via AC2 that are service and events and the channels should just still work in that case, given the abstractions right and coded up. And yeah, and that's what I'm kind of excited about because if you've been working in web a long time, like we've seen many epochs where stuff just changes all of a sudden, like SOAP, REST, now Graph, QL, and we're always working to keep up. But increasingly, we seem to be learning our lessons where if we can isolate particular decisions to different areas, we don't have to refactor as much. This is part of the reason I like GraphQL so much, because it's, again, a descriptive data-driven way of getting data and could be ported to any type of protocol, like you could have WebSockets or whatever. And then you mentioned that these are set up in your head in the way you think about them as modules. So what does the high-level vision of integrating the Elm side with the Phoenix side work like? Are these two different projects that you set up side by side? And then you've got just this one front end project, which just knows how to connect to this endpoint, or are these all kind of set up together? Because it sounds like this is the peanut butter and jelly, the fish and chips, the worst and sauerkraut, whatever your favorite food combinations are, chocolate, peanut butter, that these things are a nice combination together, but are these kind of mixed together or are these things that just play well and do you keep them separated because they should be separated or do they kind of live side by side and you have to kind of work with one another together? So presently they work together. They're inside one application right now in a 1.2 Phoenix layout. I have a folder called Elm. I have a couple Elm 
programs because I don't do the full screen app. I prefer to have a division of labor to be inside one div. And that one div has a very specialized job. And each div is attached to an ephemeral channel, not to one WebSocket because that's multiplex, but to like whatever I'm, channel events I'm subscribing to. And then I have those things named for whatever business logic on the Phoenix side they're interacting with. I did this for a lot of conveniences with Brunch and how Phoenix has this web folder. However, in Phoenix 1.3, all that's changing. And my vision, although I haven't tested with it yet because I'm busy right now, but watch this space where I will be working on this. My ideal vision is because Chris is ripping out models. Well, ish. He's ripping out the idea of particular MVC models. And what I would like to do is have the business logic of, for an example, for a blog, has the idea of posts. And I would like the Elm stuff to live side by side with the Elixir and Ecto and all of any domain specific languages as one set of business logic. So that if I'm browsing around in a directory, I know this is the stuff that's responsible for that. And then I'll probably have to reconfigure our brunch or webpack to be able to pick up those Elm files and put them out. Because as I said, I lo- maybe a theme with me is I like to focus on a particular problem and all of that stuff to kind of be in one area. And that makes sense. And part of the reason I was curious as to how you had set it up was I know that at Elixir Conf US 2 was that Chris was talking about the channel support across a bunch of different apps. And I didn't know if if that meant you're just treating Elm as your front end and part of the rendering engine that just happens on the front end versus having your front end be a separate app and then your Elixir and Phoenix portion be a service that just is deployed independently that you're just using channels to communicate through. Yeah, I I prefer to have, as I said, the business logic all in one particular region because over the years, I've even though there is very much a division between what's happening on various browsers as a client and a server analogy, I've over time discovered that it leads to weird ghettoization like in dev teams. Because if you say, oh, we're making, I'll use a blog example again, where if we're making a blog and then, well, the front end guy needs this and the back end guy needs this. And I'm not a huge believer in full stack developers, but if the front end guy is doing something and the back end guy is doing something just in this analogy of a team and they're not communicating well, you end up with two separate apps. Whereas if you put everything in one folder and they're watching and they're paying attention and it's all split into one particular, let's call it business logic solution, then I find that aids the development flow. Even if you're just one developer sitting and doing a pipeline from database to a client. But yeah, that's just, I try to avoid thinking of the front end as a separate application just in my design patterns, because I'm not sure it leads to necessarily the best design, for me at least. And that makes sense. And I've seen places where if you have multiple front ends, be it phones or web interfaces, then sometimes it makes sense to take advantage of having the front end for the web be a separate app in the same way that your web client is to create a uniform API that you're consuming. And I didn't know which route you were going, but Having it together, if you don't need that, makes sense as well. 
Yeah, sometimes it's unavoidable. Like if you have an iOS app that's connecting to your Phoenix app, they have to be separate. I'm a large proponent of responsive design in CSS. So generally speaking with the web solution, at least with Phoenix, it's very easy to do what I'm saying. But absolutely, if you have an iOS app or an Android app or something like that, you do have to have that degree of separation. Unless, of course, because from what I'm seeing in movements, and I have no one in the Elm community telling me this, this is just my conspiracy theory, is given the way that Elm compiler is taking flags, maybe Elm will have a compile target for iOS at some point in the future or a compile target for Android, which there's nothing prohibiting it from doing that. And then, yeah, my solution would again be similar. You just have a, when the compile's finished, you would just have an iOS app at the end. Again, weird conspiracy theory. Please feel free to ignore me. Not having looked at Elm enough, that sounds interesting because I know they've there's been talks of potential other backends besides just the web backend on that. So I'm not quite sure how that would work, but it does sound like an interesting premise. Yeah, it, it's an interesting premise because it validates my design decisions, right? So, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, if if that were to happen, you wouldn't have you would have the same thing again. You would just compile out and be able to do the business logic. Again, I don't know if that's the direction Elm is actually taking. It's just my crackpot theory based on some stuff that happened in 17.1. And then you also mentioned you set up every piece of domain groupings as a separate div. So those become essentially components in your world that this area becomes a blog post and then this area has a div for a comment. Maybe you have a div that creates other comments and you've essentially set up things as components in a sense. Yeah. I guess that's the old Unix in me. Do one thing well. It makes the Elm code easier to read because you're not updating like the entire page or stuff like that, at least in my case. And I prefer this embed. In fact, that's one of the major selling points because I like the idea of having a channel which has usually something on the back end of something specific being attached to a very particular div on a page. There's something about that that appeals to me deeply. And then you mentioned Evan and Chris gave a talk at Erling Factory. I'm thinking it was this year, if I'm remembering right, but it might have been last year because I think it was after Elixir US 2. It was certainly this year. I remember because I uh, couldn't make it to Erlang Factory in March because I was in New Zealand. So, yeah, I watched that one from YouTube. And so if they're looking at making this blend even nicer, what have you found as you're just keeping your eye on this, even if you're not able to take advantage of it in the current code base at work, that is leading you to take note of this idea and how is that future looking? Well, as you saw in Alan Gardner's talk from last year, there was a lot of wiring one had to do with the signals and mailboxes, etc. About a month after that Erlang Factory talk, Evan shipped 17.0 or 17.1, I forget which. And then all of a sudden we had subscription and command in a side talk, because that was right around ElixirConf Berlin. And I decided to talk with Alan Gardner when we were having coffee. He's like, yeah, I think my entire blog series can be reduced to two posts. Do this. And it's untrue, but it definitely is 
a lot of the architectural understanding of Elm is no longer necessary. You kind of can just subscribe or send commands and think of them as pub sub and move on with life. Whereas before you kind of had to know the internal signaling methods inside Elm, which absolutely you should know that because it's really interesting. But to get things done is, is not necessary. And then also there's the WebSocket, which Elm natively supports WebSockets, which Frank Bonetti's Socket.js type library utilizes. So it's, you can actually not use JavaScript at all, which is the first time I've ever been able to say that in my career, <laughs> and be able to ship front ends. You don't need, I don't even think you need jQuery at that juncture. You just, you could incorporate Frank Bonetti's, I haven't tested this, so please don't send hate mail if it doesn't work. But I mean, like you could import Frank Bonetti's library for Phoenix Elm integration and your Elm apps and just never touch JavaScript. Like it's not even in your code base anymore. But there would still be other things that you might want to have JavaScript for, but that's what ports are for. But aside from that, yeah, it's actually possible, which it wasn't before, to do that, which is impressive how the two technical sides of the community are working together to make coding easier for all of us. And how does this fit in? Are these just Elm modules that you're pulling in that knows how to deal with a Phoenix channel? Or is there something that Phoenix works separately with to support Elm? How do these two work to create that integration without being coupled to each other? Yeah, there's literally an Elm package. So it's called Elm Phoenix Socket. And if you import that library in, it's a state manager for Phoenix channels. And done, like any other uh, modern system, you just import the libraries from their very elegant package manager here, and you're off to the races. Which, as I mentioned earlier, like was not possible a year ago. You had to know more. And so this just becomes another channel library for Phoenix, and there's not a whole lot that you would need to do on the Phoenix side to take advantage of this at that point then? Yeah, it's just another package in Elm you don't seem to need. I haven't played with it since August. I've been keeping up with it, like, you know, reading, and the library keeps getting better as going through it. But yeah, I was avoiding using my port solution to talk to Socket.js that's included with Phoenix. It kind of supplants it. And that helps clarify how some of this stuff fits together because seeing Phoenix at that ElixirConf US talk and Chris McCore talking about it, that you had the .NET channel adapters, you had the iOS channel adapters, you had that native Socket.js channel adapters. So this just becomes another one that's specifically known how to integrate with Elm and used in Elm and written in Elm with the interfaces that you need. Yeah, and it's led to some interesting bits as well because the year pull request in, which I was looking at it last night, for subscribing to multiple channels as a map inside Elm. Because like even Elixir, the Erlang-Elixir relationship, Elixir exposes the Erlang VM in a different way than Erlang does, which is part of its advantages and disadvantages at times. And this is kind of the same thing the intuitive way that you could subscribe to multiple channels really kicks my multiple channel version of this butt. Like it's way simpler, it's easier to deal with. So this is part of the advantage of working in a pure Elm functional way. It suddenly exposes the API for you to be able to do more interesting things or different things at least. And then you've mentioned Alan Gardner's blog post series 
a number of times. We'll get that included. We'll get his presentation included. But you've also mentioned that it's out of date just due to the evolution of the integration between Elm and Phoenix. Where do you point people to to go find out good examples to get started if they're trying to do a playground and see how these two things fit together and do a simple thing in the same way that you said you followed along with Alan's tutorial blog post when you're getting started? Is there a good resource for the Phoenix and Elm integration and getting that started and getting a basic Hello World project tied together in the state it is now? I think Alan Garner has actually updated his blog post since to the 17 stuff. So you'd kind of have to do it backwards where you just look at the top end of the current state because he has that all in GitHub where here's what 17.0 looks like. And then as you want to dig deeper into it, you go through his blog post and you'll see the Elm architecture in its full glory evolving over six months. And the actually Phoenix evolution as well, because there were a couple updates in there for Phoenix. So that that's a good resource, which I point people to. There's a Elm in Action is being published by Richard Feldman, which is a great book. In fact, if you want to just read Elixir in Action, Elm in Action, you'll probably be done. Now, Elm in Action is like four chapters in or something to that effect. It just got updated today, so there might be more chapters. That's a, a very good resource. And right around the 17 release, there was Rock, Paper, Scissors implemented in Elm. And that was also a really great Hello World because it's a slightly more complicated problem than necessarily picking seats. But it had no backend, not no backend. It had no database attached to it, I believe. So you could really see how it talks to Phoenix without dealing with persistence. That was another project I point people to, to learn Elm things. And then, of course, there's the lovely uh, example Elm pages and that sort of things, like with the time traveling Mario and et cetera, which is great. And that sounds good. And you gave a bunch of other good resources for Elixir and Elm individually, which is also useful. Yes. I just can't speak highly enough of Elixir in action. Like Sasha's book is really good for learning Elixir. And then as people are learning Erlang or Elixir, are there any caveats that you would want to kind of give awareness to of mistakes that you made that you want to help people avoid the pain and suffering that you went through as you had to adopt some of this stuff? Well, there's the mantra of all developers in Elixir. There's very nice documentation. Use it immediately. Don't come back to it later. Another caveat is something I've gotten sloppy about was Dialyzer originally didn't support maps. So it created interesting compile things when working with Elixir. Now it does use Dialyzer. It helps you, particularly if you're using Elm, because Dialyzer gives you a lot of the advantages of strong typed systems with only the minor disadvantages of with none of the disadvantages of strong type system, because you can still compile it and just ignore the warnings. It's not a good idea to do that, but you can. So yeah, use Dialyzer. I've been very bad about that in a more recent time because I wasn't using it for so long. Caveats with Elixir. Sometimes, and this is takes a bit of finesse, even in Elixir, Elixir has a lot of nice abstractions. Sometimes it's easier to just drop into Erlang and do your stuff. particularly. I have a couple solutions for dealing with strings as binary math, which is a little easier in the Erlang syntax than it is in Elixir. Like I've done them both side by side and 
it's not that great. So just be aware, like in Elixir, you can dump into Erlang if it seems like it might be easier to do in Erlang. But also as a caveat for the longest time, because I like when I was pattern matching, I would use the Erlang syntax on binary strings. I occasionally forget to use the very elegant spaceship operator, which allows me to do that type of pattern matching without having double colons and this is a binary and all of that. I liked that for the reason that it was super explicit what's happening, but it's not the easiest on the eyes. And I find that some younger developers are coming in straight from Elixir actually look at that and say, what the hell is going on? So be wary of over dumping into Erlang if you're trying to solve the problem. Those along with probably the metaphor of talking about a game loop or a storyboard slash animation of a movie frame where you've got almost that little flip book of someone drawing the little cartoon for the way that Elm's model works, where every page is individual, seems like a good shortcut as well to thinking about the Elm architecture in that sense. Oh, yeah, that came very naturally to me as an analogy. And it's really great, I found, for explaining to people just coming in. It's just like, forget You're not mutating the state. You're redrawing this div. This div is now a new frame. And then we mentioned a couple of different projects. Is there anything you want to plug or any other projects you want people to know about involved in this area or that you think are worth checking out? Well, I have a couple of projects on the back burners at the moment. So watch my GitHub profile. There might be something interesting with Elm and Phoenix in the very short future. But again, don't hold your breath on that one right now. I would say big ones to watch. Do watch Frank Bonetti's Elm Phoenix socket layer for this particular stuff. Look at the Elm 18 debugger, which I didn't talk about, but is actually a big leap in debugging Elm apps as that progresses. Because one of the things I liked about both Elixir and Elm is this drive towards accessibility. And the Elm warning messages were always good. And the debugging abilities were very good, but increasingly that's getting easier. I can't think of any other straight libraries right now, but if I can think of anything, I will happily send an addendum. And I'll get those added to the show notes if you think of anything else. So where can people follow along with you and find you online and kind of just keep an eye on what's going on in your world? There's always my GitHub profile when I open source things and stuff like that. That is there, and my GitHub profile is Polymetus. I am on Twitter, uh, but put a huge caveat on that. I retweet a lot of cat pictures. Like, there's a lot of that. So I'm underscore Polymethus underscore on the Twitter. And I do have a blog, which I is part of the Watch This Space, because I'm uh, redoing something in Phoenix and Elm, but it's obviously incredibly spare time process, which is worldoftomorrow.ca. That is also not the best resource right now, because I think it's about three years out of date. So don't look at that. And since I work with I Want My Name right now, uh, I do publish on the IWantMyName.com blog, where we are publishing some interesting stuff, particularly on I work with some other Elixir Phoenix devs, and we've just published a new article on FreeBSD and ZFS in the world of Elixir and Phoenix. And there's some interesting stuff coming there. And I'll get all those in the show notes as well, so people can come back and find the right spelling, and find everything appropriately for easy reference. Yes, it is the pity about being Greek. 
none of my names are easy to spell. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Lee, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. It gave a good rundown of some of the stuff I was hearing about between Phoenix and Elm and a little bit of update of what's been going on in the Elm world since last I talked to people doing Elm on this podcast. So it's always nice to get a little update and refresher of some of the variations of what's going on. So thanks for taking your time to join me today. And it was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, No worries. Thank you for inviting me. It was lovely to talk. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.